So each one of these truths comes with a decision. And the decisions go like this. Read this with me. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. Now, you and I uh, know this, right? That each one of these choices we intend to do all the time. Amen? Amen. Sometimes our intentions don't work out. (laughs) Thanks, Victoria. Yeah, right. Amen. What happens in our life of faith is that as stress and anxiety and trauma and heartache and grief come, we end up defaulting back to a different way of living. The process of being a disciple is to practice making these choices every day so that when stress and anxiety comes, you can default to this rather than to your old coping mechanisms of trying to live like you're an orphan. This is what today's sermon is all about. We're going to see David and Saul defaulting to their practices when stress and anxiety comes. So if you've been with us the last five weeks, we've started the first Samuel sermon series. If you haven't, let me give you a two-minute catch-up. First, King Saul, has he's the first king of Israel, and he has one job to do, and that one job is to listen to God. And over the past five weeks, what we've seen is that King Saul has failed miserably at this job, right? Um, he wants to do the job of the priest, and so when Samuel uh, is going to offer a sacrifice, Saul doesn't wait for Samuel to show up. He offers the sacrifice. And he, doesn't, he, he wants to take the role of prophet as well. And so when Samuel the prophet, who's also the high priest, when Samuel says, hey, look, when you're battling Al-Qaeda Jr., I need you to follow these instructions. And Saul says, I'll just do it my own way. Okay? Does that make sense? So Saul wanted to be king, prophet, priest, and king, a.k.a. God. And in fact, what Paul's doing is that he, or what Saul is doing is he's saying, God, I don't want you in my life. I've got this. And so God says, oh, really? Okay, go ahead. Let's see how that works out. And so God removes his anointing. That's the presence of the Lord from Saul. And instead, it makes room for this evil spirit to come and torment Saul. In 1 Samuel, it says that God sends this, right? And any way that you look at it, Saul's decision ends up in this horrible state for him. And so Saul experiences the nightmare of what um, our pride so often encourages us to do. Can anybody relate? Pride says do it by yourself, and then we do it, and we end up, oh boy. Yeah, not good. So that's where Saul is. So what does God do? Well, God sends David to help Saul. So David stands up here like Hillary playing his guitar, worshiping, and the evil spirit is muted and, is, and leaves. And David becomes Saul's armor bearer. David even slays a giant for Saul. Of course, Saul doesn't recognize David in any of that. 
And the only thing that Saul's concerned is, is that when David and Saul are walking back from beating the Philistines, when David killed Goliath, all of the women in the, in the, in, in the men and the women in, the, in Jerusalem were clapping and there's, they sang this song, right? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul was like, excuse me? And he got anxious and paranoid. Like, here's this kid who's going to take all of his glory. And instead of rejoicing, Saul grows envious at David's every success. And David then, Saul sends David out on one dangerous mission after the next, hoping that David will be killed. Instead, David wins all of the battles and Saul's plans backfires. Paul preached an amazing sermon last week, which talked about David and Jonathan's friendship and how God then gives David a gift in the middle of his trials, which is his friend. And Jonathan is amazing because Jonathan mimics the way David, or Jonathan loves David is just like Jesus loves us. Does that make sense? The way that Jonathan is a friend to David is the way that Jesus is a friend to us. And so this whole friendship between Jonathan and David is, is introduced by Jonathan giving David his armor and his sword, weapons which David could never afford, just like Jesus gives us his armor, the armor of God to help us for our fight. And Jonathan takes, up, takes off his robe, which is a sign of royalty, which David could never inherit. And he give, places it on David's shoulders, just like Jesus gives us a royalty that we could never earn. Amen? Yeah. Jonathan takes off his ring. That's power and authority and gives it to David. In the same way, Jesus does that for us, giving us, us his power and his authority so that when we pray in Jesus' name, mountains move. Amen? So this is an incredible story of Jonathan and David, and today we're going to see another example about how Jonathan lays down his life and, and literally becomes vulnerable to die for the sake of, of David. And, and Paul talked about how we have these gospel friendships, um, this key, these kingdom friendships um, that make all the difference. So today we're going to read 1 Samuel 19, and this whole chapter is about Saul's repeated attempts to try and kill David. Um, it's good reading. I mean, it's exciting, right? This is like the Fast and the Furious franchise. It's a, it's a thriller ride movie. And on top of that, it's hilarious. And it also answers a very important question, which is this. Where is God when everything falls apart? So... When we're talking about where is God when everything falls apart, when our anxiety is through the roof, that's when our senses become dulled. You ever notice that? It's like you can't feel or see or think or God feels really far away. So if you feel like you're drowning right now, um, if you feel like you don't know what to do right now because of a diagnosis or a friend or a kid or a grandkid, you, this today's for you. Okay, but can we pray first before we do anything else? Lord Jesus, we bind up and mute the enemy that would be seeking to distract us or bother us or harm us now in Jesus' name.
We pray, Father, for your spirit here. Holy Spirit, come. Speak to us. Deliver us. Untangle our hearts. Let the truth and the gospel do your work. We love you, Jesus. We give you this time. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Read with me. 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. Saul. That's a bad day. Right? Anybody here have had the might of the federal government trying to kill them? Right? I mean, that'd be a bad day. Uh, I mean, David has got to be kind of pulling his hair out. It doesn't matter how many times he plays worship for Saul or kills giants for Saul or wins battles for Saul or, I mean, nothing's good enough. Well, why? Well, we kind of have an idea, right? It's like that time when Saul and David entered back into Jerusalem and people were singing about the glory of David, not Saul. And so you could deduce that the reason why Saul wants to kill David is because Saul does not want to share any kind of glory, any kind of love. He wants all the love and all the glory and all the praise and all the adoration from the people all from himself, all for himself. Why? Well, it's because he's not getting anything from God. This is really interesting in our lives. When you and I stop talking to God, when we stop talking to and listening to Jesus, we end up living in scarcity. Scarcity is scarcity says that there's a limited amount of money, a limited amount of mo- of love, a limited amount of precious resources that we need. Time, energy, whatever it is that we value. There's a limited amount. And so how do you feel when someone takes those limited resources from your life? Yeah, angry, mad, suspicious, resentful, jealous, everything. Because when I only have this much time and energy, right, and then my kids or my wife start eating into that pie, then I get afraid, oh, and then you people call, and then, oh, no, then there's not enough for me. Does that sound familiar? That's scarcity. And scarcity is alive from the pit of hell. In the kingdom of God, the pile of resources is ever-expanding. It's ever-expanding. There's more money and more love and more time and more opportunity and more resources than you could ever imagine. And what that does is it allows you to then trust your infinitely generous, infinitely kind, infinitely patient God so that you can be generous yourself. One of the ways that you might be able to see that you might need to pray more and listen more is how generous are you with your time and your energy and your resources? Do you, that will, that will reveal whether or not you actually believe that God is pouring those things into your life or whether or not you're operating out of the lie from scarcity. You picking up what I'm putting down? I got, I got kind of deep fast, didn't I? Okay, let's, let's keep on reading. 
So Saul wants to kill David. Keep on reading to me. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan is committing treason. He's betraying the direct order of a king in order to save his friend's life. Verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, he's going to make two arguments. First is a legal argument. Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. That's a legal argument. Now, in case Saul isn't interested in a legal argument, Jonathan is now going to appeal to Saul's self-interest. He's going to say, by the way, and what he has done has made you rich. He's won all your battles and gotten all the loot and increased the coffers and strengthened the military. Like, what more do you want? Why would you, why would you drone the guy who's your rainmaker? Does that make sense? So... Saul responds with a surprising promise. Verse 6. <clears throat> Saul, that's the only time in 1 Samuel that those two words are put together. <laughs> Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. This might sound encouraging, but of course, Saul is making his promise based on God being alive, and we're not so sure how Saul feels about God at this point. But for now, the takeaway is secure. David is safe. And so David then receives this good news for, from Jonathan. Jonathan's like, hey, my dad's not going to kill you. You want to come back to work? Would, would you go back to your job? Would you like, you know what? I'm, you know, I just like uploaded my resume. Like, I'm good, you know. So the sheep are boring, but they don't try and kill you, man. But David does something miraculous. He, he, he goes back. He goes back to serve the guy who's trying to destroy him. Verse 7. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul. And David was with Saul as before. Once more, war broke out. So the Philistines invade Israel. And so Saul, instead of Saul going to fight, what does he do? And David went out and fought the Philistines. You'd think that Saul would learn this lesson, that every time David goes out, he wins, and David gets the glory, and then Saul goes nuts. But Saul doesn't learn the lesson. So David struck them with such force that they fled before him. I love that, right? David goes like this, and they all flee, right? <clears throat> so what do you think? How do you think Saul's going to respond? Yeah, he's going he's gonna to lose his mind. Let's read, right? Let's, let's find out about workplace misconduct. 
But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. Can you picture him? He's sitting down on the couch fiddling with his spear, right? He's kind of, you know, tossing it back and forth, rolling it in his hand, and he's in a foul mood. And the attendants say, get David. David comes in, tunes up his guitar, and starts playing. And while David was playing his guitar, it's a Martin, Saul tried to what? Can you imagine? That'd be quite the gig. Wait, hold on, what? Just stop it, right? This is the third time that Saul has chucked his spear at the locally hired guitar player minstrel. Like, this is bad, right? But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. Now, this time, it's not Saul throwing. This time, it's Saul doing this, right? Can you, can you put yourself there? Hey, whoa, whoa, hey, calm down. Hey, you know what? That's it. I'm, I'm out of here. And we don't know. I mean, maybe David's out of tune. Maybe he needs to play a different song, but he doesn't stick around to find out. That night, David made good his escape. So before Saul calms down, he decides to send out a black ops hit squad to take David out. Verse 11, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, son, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. Now, Michal is Saul's daughter, so she knows her dad well. So Michal let David down through the window, bedsheets, and he fled and escaped. Everybody's go, now here's where it gets good, y'all. Then Michal took an idol, which is kind of weird that it's in David's house, but oh well. It's a statue, okay? It's a statue, and laid it on the bed. See where she's going? Covering it with a garment, so it's like, She put on David's jeans and his little shirt on it and putting some goat's hair at the head. So she literally made a mannequin of David and put it in the bed, covers on, right? Tape player going with the snoring sound, the whole nine yards, right? So this is awesome, right? So the sun comes up, and the black ops hit squad knocks on the door. Boom, boom, boom. Open up. We're looking for David. And Michal cracks the door open. Verse 14, when Saul sent the men to capture David, we were looking for David. Michal opens up the door. This is the king's daughter and says, he's puking. Go away. And they do. They do. They go back. They go back and they tell, I mean, that's a lot of moxie for a woman, right? Just imagine all of the big six foot three SWAT guys, right? Armed to the teeth. And this woman says, he's sick. Go away. Leave. Get out of here. No, you cannot come in. Leave. Go. Shoot. You want me to call my dad? Right? And they're like, okay, all right, all right. So 
they report back to Saul, who rolls his eyes and sends them right back with orders to break down the door. And this time, they don't knock. Verse 16. But when the men entered, so there's no knock this time. When the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. So you can imagine this, right? They're flinging back the covers, ready to, to take David out. And it reminds me of this incredible movie that I watched when I was growing up on Saturday afternoon. And it was Clint Eastwood starring in the movie Escape from Alcatraz. Did anybody ever see that movie? It is so awesome. So Eastwood plays this inmate, Frank Morris. This is all true story. Frank Morris, who's a real inmate in Alcatraz in the 70s, and who escaped by pulling a David and Michal. So Morris made a dummy head. This is actually his head. I don't know where he got the goat hair, but, but that's where he got it, right? So Frank Morris made this replica of his head, and then he put it in the bed. Here's the picture, literally, of the cell of him in the bed. And then he scraped a hole in, underneath his sink and shimmied out in between the walls of Alcatraz, swam through the San Francisco Bay on inflated uh, shirts, and escaped and lived to safety. Go see the movie. Clint Eastwood is awesome in it. No, wait, no, not that one. Oh, uh, that was a punchline to the next joke. So this week in Sunday school, the children are making dummy heads of themselves to escape you parents. So this week should be good. So all y'all, there it is. So when the Black, Ops, the Black Ops team reports their second failure, once again, Saul loses it. But word comes out that David has been seen in this little town called Naoth or Naoth. And Naoth, unfortunately, is about eight miles away from Jerusalem. You would think that if the king is going to try and kill you, that you'd go farther than Shell Beach. <laughs> right? Like, go at least to San Luis <clears throat> or to the, like, you know, to Paso. Because anybody that lives in San Luis Obispo thinks that Paso is in a different country. Right? <laughs> The rest of the world, when they come to the county, they're like, oh, you want to go to Paso? Great. It's like 35 minutes, 40 minutes away. And everybody who's been here for longer be like, I have to go up a hill? <laughs> I don't think I can make it. It's like, you're not doing the work. The car is doing the work. It's, come on, man. Right? Anybody relate with that? Paul and I, we got here and... I lived in Los Osos for 10 years. Paul does the same. They're like, you drive to Los Osos? And it's like, well, I'm not running. Like, I just cruise control, podcast, beautiful scenery. Like, it's not hard. I digress. Okay. Anyways. So David's in Shell Beach. So why is David in Shell Beach? Well, the prophet Samuel is there. And they talk, and David tells Samuel everything. And meanwhile, Saul sends his goons a third time to capture and kill David. And he, you're going to love this, okay? Verse 19. When the word came to Saul, David is in Shelbeth, uh, he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets, so the guys go to Shelbeach, and they show up to the little church in Shelbeach where Samuel works, and David is hiding. And when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, was Samuel standing there as their leader? Read this last sentence with me. 
the Spirit of God came on Saul's men. The word prophesied here is the Hebrew word naba. Say that with me. Naba. N-A-B-A. Naba. Naba means to prophesy. The secondary meaning of naba is to have a powerful spirit come over you. And it could be something bad. So the word naba is used when the evil spirit torments Saul and he loses his mind. Or it could be a most powerful spirit like God himself. It could be good, right? So the spirit of the Lord nabas Saul's men and they naba. Does that make sense? So picture it. Picture it. You got all these burly guys coming in, ready to capture and kill David. And they walk into the doors of the little church where everybody's helpless and unarmed. And what happens? They fall to their knees. And they begin to speak about how good and glorious and merciful and lovely our Heavenly Father is. That's incredible. When God releases them, the SWAT team has to tell Saul what happened. Can you imagine writing that after action report? Well, we went in and the ushers overpowered us. Rose and Diane and Mary and Delano and they, Marcia, they're powerful women in the snack room and they just, it was brutal. I've never experienced anything like it. And then the pastor wouldn't stop preaching and it was like, oh my gosh, right? So what do they do? <clears throat> so Saul, Saul fires this first team, right? And next slide. Saul was told about it. <clears throat> he sent more men. The first team got axed. And the first men, what happens? They show up to Shell Beach and... Oh, dang. So they come back to Saul, tell him what happens. Saul fires them. Saul sent men a... What happens? Three squads of Saul's best soldiers all show up to a little church in Shell Beach where David is hiding, and all three squads are overwhelmed by the power and presence of our living God. They can't touch David. All they can do is speak of God's glory. So can I tell you a crazy story? You might not believe it. That's okay. I didn't believe it the first time I heard it until I met everybody involved, and they all told me that's what happened. Now I know it's all true. Here we go. You ready? I'm building this up because it's a pretty good story. So a friend of mine, George, um, got a phone call from a woman that George and his wife Cindy were praying for. This is a woman. Um, George and Cindy had been caring for this woman who had been, she had finally escaped the men who had been trafficking her for over a decade. And they'd been working with her for five years. So five years into this relationship of helping this woman that had been trafficked, they got a phone call from this woman. And on the phone, this amazing woman was absolutely terrified. She could barely talk. And she told George that her traffickers had found her. And they captured her. 
and they had bound her and drugged her, and now she was in a dark room, hands tied, couldn't see anything, drugged, disoriented, and somehow her cell phone fell out of her pocket. They didn't take it, and she was able to dial George's phone with her nose and chin and tongue and speak to him. And she had no idea where she was, so calling the cops wasn't going to help. And she could barely talk, so George just started praying. First, he prayed for light in the room. And he said, Jesus, we need light in the room. And the woman on the phone said, oh, well, that's better. And George said, what happened? She says, well, the, the room is lit, but none of the light bulbs are on. Okay. Then George says, what do you need next? And she says, well, I can't move. I'm like, my feet and my hands are bound. And George said, okay, Jesus, we need this woman's hands and feet unbound now in Jesus' name. And she goes, well, that worked. (laughs) And her bindings fell off, her hands and her wrists. But she couldn't get free. She could barely talk. And she she couldn't walk. And outside this room are all of the men who are trafficking her in this house. And so she said, look, I can't walk and I need to get out of here and all of these people need to be blind and deaf and not see me or hear me, so I don't know what's going to happen there. And so George says, well, let's just pray. That's George's line, by the way. If you ever get to meet and hang out with George Freeman, um, you will, he'll just say, well, let's just pray. It, it works for him. And so she said, he said, George prayed, well, Jesus, we need all the people in the room to not be able to see this precious or my precious friend or hear them, and we need you to get her out of there. And then he starts healing, hearing her laughing on the phone because she's being picked up by an angel. The door opens, and she's being walked through the middle of the house, and no one can see her. Now she's in the car, and he, George says, okay, where are you now? She's like, I'm in the car. And she said, well, can you drive? She's like, no, I've been pumped so full of heroin, I can't do anything. Like, you're going to have to drive this car. And she, George says, well, okay, <clears throat> Jesus, we need um, you to drive the car to my house. And she goes, that works. I'm going to bed now. Ten minutes later, George and Cindy are standing on the front of their street, and they're watching as the car, her car, drop pulls up into the driveway with her asleep on the passenger seat. Crazy story, right? Yeah, well, go talk to George if you, need, if you need something. Yeah, you can clap. Come on. That's an amazing story. Where is God when everything falls apart? Jesus is right here with you, protecting you, helping you, providing for you. Well, why, Pastor Andy, doesn't God just prevent all these bad things from happening in the first place? Why doesn't God just change Saul or prevent the hit squads from coming or end human trafficking all at once? Why do all these bad things happen to begin with? Uh, No one can answer that question. But I can give you a little bit of perspective. 
We're the only generation and the only country in the world that thinks that God should be in the business of preventing all things that we deem bad from happening. And, and, and we think that way because we then reason that God doesn't care about us or is somehow impotent or unable to prevent bad things from happening. That's our conclusion. And we didn't used to think this way as our culture. It's only been in the last 75 years that our American culture has thought this way. Um, let me give you my theory as to why this is happening. In 1910, according to the Bureau of Labor, yes, I was on the Bureau of Labor's website this week, 75% um, of Americans lived in rural areas in 1910. Uh, today, in America, 13% of people in America live in rural areas. In 1910, 75% of people lived in rural er uh, America. And of those 75%, according to the 1910 t census, 57% worked on a farm. So 75% of the country is living in rural areas, and 57% of the country is working on a farm. You add in craftsmen on top of that, that's over 67% of the country that lives on, works, or supports a farm. In 1910, everybody knew somebody who worked or lived on a farm. Everybody. In 2000, in, in 2000 the amount of people that worked on farms in the United States was 1.6%. Does anybody know anybody that works on a farm? Four or five people. Well, you all know the dobas. They, they grow flowers, so that doesn't even count. But here's my hunch. Yes, you're farmers. You count, but you all knowing them doesn't count. Here's my hunch. Um, farmers understand something that we've completely forgotten, and it's this. Bad things happen all the time, and God is still with you. Suffering happens all the time, and God is still good. The rain, which we so desperately needed last year in California, that rain, do you remember that rain? That glorious, miraculous rain? It was part of a pressure system that also destroyed all of the spring hay and wheat for ranchers and farmers in Wyoming. The thing that we praise God for as a blessing ruined the financials of, I, of Wyoming ranchers and farmers last year. So is this God? No, it's weather. It's life. Bad things happen in life. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel in his book on the Sabbath writes that the Jews understood that this basic fact that suffering happens. It is. It's not because God is bad or distant or impotent. It's part of life. And this is why, according to Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, this is why the Jews understood that the day doesn't start with the sun rising, but the day starts with the sun setting. Because darkness is normal. Suffering is normal. Pain is normal. What's surprising is that any day, what's surprising is that the sun would rise even at all. What's surprising is that God could do anything good out of all of the pain and horror in our life. And this is exactly what God does 
out of the darkness, out of the chaos, God creates something good. Remember in Genesis 1, what does he create out of? Nothing. When everything was darkness, darkness and void and absent of life, that's when God created something good. Isn't that beautiful? So here's David sitting in Shell Beach, and his anxiety is through the roof. Squad after squad of hitmen keep on coming, and somehow, miraculously, they're, they're free, or God shows up, and David is, is saved. And now, finally, David gets word that Saul himself is heading to Shell Beach to finish the job and kill David once and for all. So as Saul travels to the little church, well, let's read together and find out what happens. So Saul went to Shell Beach, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and as he walked along, so he's at Pismo, he's not even at Shell yet, he's walking along, the Spirit of God is so heavy on Saul that all he can do is say from Pismo Beach to Shell Beach how good and glorious and amazing God is. Then, verse 24, he shows up to the church. He walks into the church. There's Samuel. There's David. And what does King Saul do? I got to get naked. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Let's not, let's not ever do that at church, right? You ever feel like, man, God's so with me. Like, if you feel like things are coming off, and we'll pray for you to... Jesus would let off the gas pedal just a little bit. <clears throat> He's stripped. What is he stripping off? His armor. He's there to kill. His sword and his helmet and his breastplate comes off. And of course, all he's got is a loincloth underneath there. So he stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. And he lay naked all that day and all that night speaking about the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God. Where is God when you're suffering? He's with you. The pain and scars you bear, they're on his body too. In the middle of all these moments in our lives, there's gonna be opportunities that God will show you that he's in charge. Now, this is going to start two solid years of Saul trying to kill David. But God gives David this at the very beginning to help David understand that God is with him and he loves him. And what David does is that in all of this time, he makes his hiding place in God. And he writes this psalm. He says this, God, you've searched me. You know me. You know when I rest and when I get up. You know what I'm thinking all the time. You know when I'm out the door running for my life or when I'm napping. You know everything about me. Before a word is on my tongue, God, you, you, you know my thoughts. And Jesus, I can see in my life now that you're behind me. 
you're in front of me, that your hand of protection is on me, and this knowledge is, it's almost too much. It's so good. Like, where am I going to go from you? Like, I can't run away from you, God. Verse 8, well, if I go up to the heavens, so that means I fly up to the clouds, you're there. If I somehow find hell and go there, you're there. If I am beyond where anybody has ever been, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I go beyond what anybody could ever see, you're there. And even then, in unknown places, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will protect me and hold me fast. And if I say, you know what, this darkness, this pain, this suffering, this anxiety, this loss, this diagnosis, this crazy person trying to kill me, it's too much for you, God. It's like, it's like this bad thing is, is hiding me from your sight. Even daytime seems dark. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. Even the darkest place will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. See, everywhere David goes, anything David experiences, he makes God his hiding place. God is always with him. Why does David think this way? Why does David believe this? Psalm 139 ends like this. Read this with me. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Why does David believe all this? Because God made David. David belongs to God. Look, suffering and pain and frustration and heartache do not have the power to thwart God's good plan for David, nor does it have the power to thwart God's good plan for you. And for all the pain and sorrow and suffering we humans endure, God himself let all of that crush him. He had all killed Jesus. And what did God do with all of that great pain and sorrow and suffering and death that killed his one and only son? God turned that darkness into light. God raised Jesus from the grave. God broke death. God defeated suffering. God ripped apart the despair that comes with pain for the hope that we have when everything feels like it's falling apart, is this. Jesus is the victor over all death and all despair because, number one, he's with you, and number two, while he's with you, he's making new life in you. Like, I know nine of you clapped. And sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it feels like, I mean, I, I can't see it. But it's still true. So maybe you need a Jonathan or a McCall 
in your life this week to remind you of that. Maybe God will bring angels to wow you. But no matter what, you can be sure that God will never leave you nor forsake you. You're his. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, would you bless and seal these good words, the power of the gospel, the truth found in your scripture in our hearts today. You've spoken to us so clearly, God, in worship this morning and through your word. Protect that. May the enemy not rob or steal what you've said to us today. Grow within us this hope and this trust in you. Help us, Lord Jesus, this week to make you our hiding place. And God, we lift up all those in this congregation right now that feel like they're drowning under the storm of sorrow or grief or anxiety or suffering. Lord Jesus, help. We love you, Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? If you need hope today, we would love to pray for you. Don't forget to sign up to eat a tri-tip or to go to the worship night this week or a spiritual journey class on Wednesday or bingo and pasta next week, y'all. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance. That's his delight in you. And give you the peace that passes all understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day.